It was a quiet, cold night on November 23, 2010, when a driver pulled over on a two-lane highway in Auburn, New Hampshire. What the driver saw was a truck pulled over in the breakdown lane. Assuming the vehicle had been abandoned, the driver decided to check it out. What they found was shocking. In the truck was the murdered body of Thomas Denquist Sr. You're listening to Gone Cold, New Hampshire. I am Ryan Merrill, and this is A Cold Night in November, the story of Thomas Enquist Sr. Thomas Enquist Sr. was born in Saugus, Massachusetts in 1968. He was a white man with dark hair and a very muscular build. He had a lot of siblings, with two brothers and six sisters. Unfortunately, one of Enquist's brothers and one of his sisters passed away before him. He grew up primarily in Lynn, Massachusetts, where he attended school. By New England residents, Lynn is referred to as the City of Sin. The City of Sin nickname is because it has a reputation for being a bad area to live where a lot of crimes such as robberies and murders take place. Early in his life, Enquist started to associate with the Lynn Breakers gang. The gang was known in the 90s and 2000s for their commercial robberies, robbing places such as jewelry stores, pharmacies, and warehouses. On May 23, 1993, Enquist and other members of the Lynn Breakers gang crimes caught up with them. Police were called to a robbery at Gosselin's Pharmacy on Armory Street in Manchester, New Hampshire. When I spoke to former Manchester, New Hampshire police officer Walter Fedhouse, he remembers the chase and the events that followed very well. Feldhouse said Enquist was driving the getaway car and then pulled into a junkyard. Enquist and his two passengers took off on foot. In a written statement, Feldhouse said, while looking behind various piles of construction debris and lumber, Enquist jumped out from behind a pile of lumber with a crowbar in his hand. I took a step back, grabbed my weapon, and prepared to fire. When I realized I was not sure where my partner was, we were now facing where the car was initially dumped. The firing background behind Enquist was not safe to shoot. As a result, I hesitated. During that hesitation, Enquist swung a crowbar at my head. Feldhouse continues to say, I was able to lean back and avoid most of the hit, which I took on my shoulder and upper part of my chest near my shock plate. A shock plate is a bulletproof vest. Feldhouse said it kept escalating from there. Feldhouse had his gun drawn when Enquist grabbed it and turned it on him. Luckily, Feldhouse was able to get his middle finger behind the trigger, stopping Enquist from being able to fire. He goes on to say, I could hear Officer Kincaid hollering my name from the area of the car. He was moving in my direction. As Officer Kincaid came closer, Enquist became distracted for a moment. That was an opportunity for me to flip him off his feet onto a lower pile of lumber where the gun was now pointed at him. I warned Officer Kincaid as he came closer that Enquist still had his hands on the gun, and if he moved, to be aware of that and to shoot Enquist if needed. Enquist's response was to the effect of, just shoot me anyway. Enquist was then handcuffed and returned to the area where the car was originally dumped. After this encounter with Officer Feldhaus, Enquist was sentenced to 10 years in the New Hampshire State Prison in Concord, New Hampshire. To better understand Enquist and his time incarcerated, I spoke with retired New Hampshire Department of Corrections Captain Kevin Valenti. Yeah, so uh, I'm recording now. So uh, 
Hello, I am here with a new retired New Hampshire prison guard, Kevin Valenti, um, to ask some questions about uh, Thomas Enquist. So, um, my first question, I guess, is uh, how old was uh, Thomas Enquist when you first met him? Um, Thomas Enquist must have been roughly 32 years old when I met him back in uh, 2001. Like, what would you say, like, about, like, his, like, personality or kind of, like, who he was as a person at that time? Uh, when I met him, I was actually working in the reception and diagnostic unit at the state prison. He was one of our workers. Mm-hmm. He, had, uh, he was uh, an individual that had been um, incarcerated for many years at that point. He, uh, he's very respectful, actually. He, uh, he knew that long-term inmates or residents, whatever you want to call them, um, in order to achieve any sort of decency from staff or others, that he had to be respectful. He had to, um, he had to know how to play the game, ultimately. And he was he was respectful, uh, and he was respected by almost every staff that I worked with and the uh, the inmates that were incarcerated with him. So, like, there wasn't, like, necessarily, he wasn't necessarily causing problems in the prison. He actually spent more time resolving problems than he did causing problems. Oh, okay. You know, he was, he was there as, and somebody who's been incarcerated for an extended amount of time, uh, they classify the prison as their home. So they wanted the, the least amount of interactions with staff uh, going through their property and their belongings as possible. So he tried to talk the younger inmates into following the rules and not bringing heat to where he lived understood he had messed up yes and so uh i'm gonna say um do you remember like the last time you saw him like do you remember like when that was i want to say the last time i saw him was probably in 2006 2007 um i'm not even sure of the year in which he passed okay um but i know that he was uh he was out on parole at that point. Mm-hmm. But uh, he actually got out of prison. He came back on a setback, which meant that he violated his, his parole when he came back in. And I talked to him then, and he said that it was going to be a, a quick turnaround because it was a misunderstanding. And he wasn't incarcerated for that long. Oh, okay, I got you. So, like, he was kind of, his time in prison changed him? Um, I don't know if it changed him. I think that... uh. His time in prison taught him how to fly under the radar a little bit. You know, he, he matured, obviously. He, got, he was obviously older mm-hmm. than, uh, you know, the, the normal 18 to 22-year-olds that are incarcerated. So he just uh, he, he learned how to run under the radar and not be disrespectful and bring heat towards himself. I got you. So it wasn't necessarily uh, he learned not to do it. He just learned not to get caught? Primarily, yes. Oh, okay. I, I got you. A lot of the people who were uh, incarcerated long-term actually learned that really fast. While Enquist spent a decade in prison, his trouble with the law did not stop after his sentence. After he was released from the New Hampshire State Prison, Enquist was arrested two more times, but he was never charged in either case. 
One of these cases involved Thomas Einquist punching a teenage boy. The other arrest from around this time period was in connection with a $2.5 million jewelry store heist in Attleboro, Massachusetts, believed to have been carried out by the Lindbreakers gang. The only other details we have about Enquist's activity at this time is that he was a painter in the Painters' Union in Boston. He was also an avid weightlifter, and he enjoyed making wood furniture in his spare time. After these arrests took place, this brings us to around the time Enquist was found murdered. So, just to set the scene again. His black Ford F-150 was found pulled over between exits 1 and 2 heading west in Auburn, New Hampshire. Another driver noticed Enquist's truck pulled over, thinking it was abandoned, but they found the shot, murdered body of Thomas Enquist Sr. This is when police were called to the scene, and an investigation began. New Hampshire cold case attorney general Ben Agati remembered that cold night in November well, because it was a case he worked and was called out to. Uh, just like to start like kind of like basically uh can you tell me what happened on the night of november 23rd 2010 so let me again i'm just kind of waiting for it to open up here um i remember the case uh, for a lot of the different details um only because um that was actually one case that i went out on um so i was the on-call prosecutor at that time uh, my co-counsel was um, then Assistant Attorney General Jacqueline Rompre. Um, I believe she's working down in Connecticut now, but I don't think she's still in the criminal work. Um, but I can I can tell you, recall that one. It was the week just before Thanksgiving. Um, and I believe it was on the 23rd of November. I'm pretty sure that's when it was. Um, 2011, 2010, I think it was 2010. Let me see if I can get that open here. Yeah, 2010, um, when uh, what had happened is that Mr. Enquist's truck had been found um, essentially on the, the side of Route 101, and it was right near exit one uh, as you're traveling uh, westbound on 101. So if you can think directionality-wise, we're coming towards Manchester, not going away. Um, and so we was found right near exit one uh, on the side of the road. It appeared to be an abandoned truck at the time, um, and passing motorists came by. He was initially spotted around... Uh, or the truck there was initially spotted around 1020 at night. Uh, and then eventually an officer came up behind uh, the truck thinking that it had been abandoned in the breakdown lane and, and inside. Uh, they did discover uh, Mr. Enquist at that time uh, who was deceased. Um, so, uh, you know, an ambulance came, um, tried to help him out, but uh, it was too late. He was already gone. Um, and then uh, the area was immediately uh, secured and then the search was started. Um, those are kind of the, the big details that I remember from the beginning. Um, it's been pretty extensive, the investigation into his death. Um, a lot of different interviews, a lot of people that were contacted trying to find out what else occurred. Uh, you would think that this is a pretty busy highway in New Hampshire. And, you know, having the truck haven't been seen there around 1020 at night. Uh, it's not the most quiet time of night either. Um, so obviously the event occurred sometime before um, roughly 1020 or in between at least uh, no later than certainly when the trooper showed up there um, uh, at approximately, again, about 1055. I apologize, it was 1055. Um, so you know it had to occur when other cars were going by. Um, whether or not he was uh, murdered in the truck or, or murdered 
uh, nearby and placed in the truck. That's something that investigators are, are still working on to this day. Um, but it was a, a pretty extensive investigation, I can tell you that much. Um, and from my own standpoint, from what I can remember is when we arrived on scene, uh, man, it was a cold night. It was a very, very cold night um, in November. And we had a lot of different people that were working when we respond to a scene. A very cold night in November on a highway where someone had to have seen something. From our perspective, um, it really is confined to what was going on that night in his life that would have led him and his truck to be there. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the truck wasn't stolen. Um, it's a, it was a fairly nice, I believe at the time, it was only maybe two years old, uh, F-150 Patriots edition. Uh, I remember that. So it was a, a very, very nice truck. Uh, clearly, motor vehicle theft was not an intent at the time. Um, otherwise, that truck wouldn't have been left there. Um, but other than that, I can't say that there's anything necessarily surprising uh, about the scene or the investigation. What uh, hurdles were faced in the investigation that co uh, uh, caused this to go on the cold case list? I think uh, I don't know if there's anything in particular uh, of a hurdle on this case. It's one of those ones where uh, eventually there were no more leads. There was no more information that was coming in. And from the information that we had um, and New Hampshire State Police, again, working with the Auburn Police Department, um, it, it never was at the stage where they could be able to identify with certainty beyond a reasonable doubt the individual or the individuals um, who committed the crime. Um, so I don't know if there was any particular one hurdle like to say um, there simply wasn't enough um, there simply wasn't enough physical evidence or there simply wasn't enough uh, eyewitnesses. There was no testimony. It's not one or the other. Um, I would just say that this investigation just uh, they played out every card that they had. And at the end, there's, there was not enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt who did it. Not a lot turned up from the initial investigation. To this day, all we know is that he was murdered in that black special edition Ford F-150. We don't know who did it or why they did it, but there have been theories. Enquist's family believes he got murdered as a part of a drug deal gone wrong. This is a theory that could make sense because Enquist did have some history of drug use. The idea of Thomas Enquist being murdered as a part of a drug deal gone wrong is something that I brought up to retired New Hampshire Department of Corrections Captain Kevin Valenti. Well, um, obviously there were rumors that were spread throughout the prison mm -hmm. uh, that basically stated that he was with the Limbreakers mm -hmm. and they were uh, robbing like Rite Aids in uh, pharmacies for their Oxycontin and other narcotic medications. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody said that uh, he was obviously meeting up with somebody. Um, I believe, was it in Auburn where they found his vehicle? Uh, yeah, it was uh, 101 heading towards Manchester, like between exits one and two. So yeah, I, yeah, that's Auburn right there. So they um, they were stating that obviously he had an issue with somebody and they shot him, but they didn't know if it was the, the Lynn Breakers or if it was a motorcycle club or 
but obviously uh, with somebody who had been incarcerated for an extended amount of time, he wasn't very trusting. So if he was pulled over and he was going to meet with somebody, it would have been somebody that he was familiar with. Somebody right. that he... But I was, I was very surprised that he had passed, um, mm. especially the way that he did. Consider, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I was just surprised that he was, he was shot and they found him deceased, but they had no suspects or anything else. Yeah. That's a- yeah. Um, so his family has been quoted in the past saying they believe it could have been a drug deal gone bad. Is that what you think happened to Thomas Enquist? Possibly. Possibly. I know that he was, uh, he was an addict and he was um, breaking into stuff. You know, so, and I think that, that was primarily to make money and to support his habit. So it probably was a drug deal gone bad. Awesome. But it could have been, I'll say it could have been anything. It could have been a bad business deal. It could have been a drug deal gone bad. It could have been a miscommunication with others. There's, there's so many theories out there on what it actually could have been. Um, but I, I'd, probably, I'd probably say, I'd, I'd, I'm sorry, I'd agree with the family and say that it was probably a drug deal gone bad. All of this is still speculation, and the murder of Thomas Enquist Sr. is still an open case. It's on the list of cold cases that are still being investigated to this day, and could one day be solved. Um, so things kind of rotate in and out depending on the information that they have. But they try to apply the best techniques and the best review of what's there to see is there something, maybe not that was missed, but is there something that's changed, something that's new, something that hasn't been thought of before, but could be done now. Um, a lot of times, a lot of times, new information comes in when a relationship has changed. If you have any information on the murder of Thomas Enquist Sr., contact the New Hampshire Department of Justice Cold Case Unit by email at coldcaseunit at doj.nh.gov or by phone at 603 271 Thank you to the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit for contributing information for this story. Also, I would like to thank Benagotti and Kevin Valenti for their interviews. Music in this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. On the next episode of Gone Cold New Hampshire, the first and last murder, Jason Mercado dives into and discusses a robbery gone wrong, the murder of Teresa Reed.